in many churches, you know, the Lord's Supper is like this tiny edge of a cracker and a little thimble full of grape juice, which to my mind is kind of a metaphor for how we imagine being Christian. I mean, it's pathetic to call it a meal is, is just a joke. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. And our guest today is Tim Gombas. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joy. Happy to be chatting. I'm glad we got to connect, man. This is going to be a great conversation. Cool. Looking forward to it. Before we dive into it, can you give our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you are, and some of the work you do? Yeah, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I teach New Testament at uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and um, I'm a New Testament scholar. I My research and my writing focus mainly on uh, the Apostle Paul, his letters and theology. And uh, I'm kind of most excited about uh, the interface between culture and uh, Paul's theology and, you know, New Testament theology really as a whole. And um, just trying to creatively embody Christian identity in the contemporary world, given all its challenges and opportunities. That's really cool, man. And and I think we need more people like you. So thanks for the work you're doing. Oh, thanks. And that being said, that does connect to the conversation we're going to have today, which is focused on what should the church be focused on? To start off, when we say church, what, what are we talking about? That word is so diverse for so many people. But when we say church for this conversation, what are we talking about? Yeah, in many ways, it's sort of like a, a big organization in, in the modern imagination. You know, we think of buildings or uh, institutions, that sort of thing. Uh, but in the New Testament vision of things, the church is... Uh, you know, New Testament writers would have thought of small communities meeting in living rooms, uh, about 15 to 25 people, maybe 30 people gathered uh, from a diverse uh, socioeconomic statuses, uh, diverse ethnicities, and um, gender-wise, there would have been diversity, and, and that's the plan. I mean, that would be, what that that was the intention uh, in the view of New Testament writers, and of, of course of Jesus. Um, so the church according to the New Testament, is like a local body of Jesus followers. And then, you know, the universal church, like throughout the Mediterranean world, the connection of all those communities. So right off the bat, a couple other questions. Yeah. You know, was was the idea that, you know, obviously the idea was that the gospel would, would go out. You know, it says, go forth and make disciples. And, and the gathering of those disciples sort of looked like exactly what you were saying and what we would refer to as church. Was there an idea that as this got bigger, it had to multiply? Or was it more of a let's let's make a bigger space and, and continue to add people? Sort of like it says in, in the New Testament where it says they added to their number daily. Was there this model where it was like, let's just keep making this thing bigger? Or was it more about replication? Uh, probably uh, it's hard to say that because there's no, um, yeah, there's, there's no sort of thought 
on the pages of the New Testament of like, where does this go from here? But it seems to me that the intention would have been uh, the replication of further communities. So like, for example, in Rome, but also in Galatia, um, there, there are networks of house churches. So I, I don't see any indication. Uh, so for example, of like acquisition of property, like a church building that would have gotten bigger and bigger. Uh, yeah, the idea was just like a network, networks of house churches. You know, I mean, really one of the dominant metaphors in the New Testament is household, like church as household, uh, which would have been bigger than a nuclear family and would have included all kinds of people that would have attached themselves to a household, like um, artisans, um, you know, various workers. And of course, in households, there would have been slaves and servants, but also a variety of relatives. So, I mean, that's, you know, the church is called the household of God with God as kind of the household owner, you know, the one who um, everybody in the household gets their identity from the household owner and that's God in Christ. So um, house and home, um, you know, in an ancient conception of family or household would have been the metaphor. So I don't see any kind of indication that you would have had these big institutions that really would have ever owned property. That's, that's a modern well, I mean, that's been around for a while, but that's a development that I'm not sure is in the mind of anybody, you know, any New Testament figures, it seems to me. So on that, what was on the mind? What was the focal point of the gathering? Like when they got together, what were they doing? Uh, this is funny uh, because it's sort of lost in the modern world. The, the focal point is the meal. Um, I mean, it's called the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's kind of how we talk about it, but it's really the Lord's meal. So the gathering would have been most focused around the meal and then conversation and discussion around the meal. And, and the meal would have been extended like, you know, a couple hours or longer. I mean, people would have lingered and um, there. I'm not sure there would have been like a sermon. Um, there may have been like a rehearsal or telling of stories of, uh, about Jesus and discussion about how we, how we do this, how we live this out in our contemporary context. But in a really interesting passage in first Corinthians, uh, 11, and it's really important to read that whole passage. The words are familiar to many Christian people. Um, you know, the night he was betrayed, Jesus you know, took bread and wine, etc. Um, that discussion is part of like a larger rant on Paul's part in first Corinthians 11 verses 17 to 32, where he um, goes after the Corinthians for, um, for eating the Lord's meal inappropriately. Um, but then when he says about when he talks about how they should be doing it, um, he says that when they eat the meal, they declare or they proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the way that the church embodies and proclaims the Lord's death is not by like verbally talking about it, but by actually eating the meal. So like meals in the ancient world were a really big deal. Um, you know, you, you, you are who you eat with. So people would have eaten with um, those who shared their socioeconomic status, the rich ate with the rich, poor, you know, had to suffer or search for scraps with the poor. And, um, in the church, the design was these are people that gather across socioeconomic statuses, across uh, ethnicity, and men and women 
gathered together uh, to depict this diverse body that God has put together in Christ. And there's no other explanation for why that group of people would be together, except that God sent Jesus into the world to die and to be raised again. And so that's why the practice of the meal is the proclamation of the Lord's death. So, you know, that's something that we've lost in the modern world. And in, in many churches, you know, the Lord's supper is like this tiny edge of a cracker and a little thimble full of grape juice, which to my mind is kind of a metaphor for how we imagine being Christian. I mean, it's just this pathetic, um, I mean, to call it a meal is, is just a joke. Um, we don't imagine being Christian as this robustly satisfying, wonderful practice of sharing and enjoyment and rest and an opportunity to talk about how our week was and the opportunity to listen to other people. Um, so yeah, the focal point was the meal. It's supposed to be a rich experience. That's fascinating from from my point of view because I grew up, I don't know if you're familiar, but I grew up Plymouth Brethren mm -hmm. and they focus on the Lord's Supper weekly in a meeting, but it's focused on Jesus's death. Only men share uh, thoughts, prayers, you know, there's songs, and then it ultimately leads up to bread and and wine. But I've always attributed that more to looking like a funeral than a meal. Yeah. It's a somber experience, and often yeah. it, it's uh, sobering, and it's um, it's sort of self-flagellating. Like each individual kind of is quiet uh, to think about all the bad things they've ever done and try to dredge up any sort of unconfessed sin. Um, Paul talks about doing a work of self-examination there in 1 Corinthians 11, but the work of self-examination is to determine... Um, and, and the Corinthians need to do self-examination because they're doing the meal wrongly. They're doing it in a way that excludes others and shames um, the people that the surrounding culture would shame. Um, so the self-examination would be to, do, uh, to search out any practices that are fostering or furthering exclusion. Um, but it's not like a general self-examination, like how, how bad have I been? You know, am I grateful enough that Jesus died for my sins? That's that's sort of um, that's individualistic, and like you said, it's sort of funerary. It's it's like a, it's I don't know. It's like a dirge. You know, it's a self-flagellating instead of a communal celebration. Now, how did we get to that point? You know, you look back on church history and you sort of say, okay, we've we've had reformations and we've had progression and all this other stuff. How did we get from you know, if, if you could give us maybe a, a short history lesson, how did we get from a communal meal that's all inclusive across socioeconomic standpoints, uh, different ethnicities and backgrounds to the guy on the stage with a thousand people in the room with the kick-ass musical experience, smoke, lights, and all this other stuff? That's a great question. I'm not a church historian, but there's been a number of developments, you know, um, over the past 2000 years that have led us to this point, at least how we do uh, things in a contemporary, um, at least with what I'm familiar with, you know, like a middle-class white conservative sort of um, environment. 
And there, there are varieties of Christian practice around the world. I'm sure that it, that it's quite diverse, but um, yeah, when the Christian movement, I mean, I try to remind myself of this all the time that um, the natural cradle for the Christian movement was in the Greco-Roman world and the far Eastern part of it. And when the temple is destroyed in uh, Jerusalem in AD 70 and the Christian movement kind of gets booted out of its natural envir environment, like in Palestine, Israel, or the land, or however we refer to it. And it goes up into, um, you know, Northern Europe over time and gets kind of adopted and adapted into that kind of a setting and then makes its way over, you know, to America. It, it gets wrapped up into so many other dynamics and historical movements that, you know, even just over the last couple hundred years, um, like e big event, spectacle, uh, performance, you know, public event, um, you know, something that draws a crowd and, you know, church has become something vastly different. It, it's, it's sort of this uh, spectator thing where we show up and watch people do things and we're passive and we're just receptors and then, you know, consumers and contributors, but we're not participants really. So, um, yeah, I'd love to know from church historians how that has developed in different time periods, but the way that many of us are familiar with being Christian and Christian practice and participation in the church is just a lot, a lot of moves away from, uh, from the intention, uh, you know, in the first century, or at least the depiction that we see on the pages of the New Testament. Yeah, and I don't know why this just came to mind, but what you were describing sounds a lot more like a Billy Graham crusade than being the hands and feet of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Do you think that the one influenced the other? Oh, absolutely. The um, In American history, if you think in terms of, um, I mean, going back to the revivals in you know the 18th century, where um, you've got, instead of local churches being bodies of uh, believers that gather together. Um, there are traveling evangelists that go out and there are these public events that, you know, so people attend the event, they listen to the speaker, they might give a response or something like that. And of course, this is a couple hundred years into, you know, the post and well, a couple hundred years into a highly individualized Western context. So we imagine being Christian as something that is, you know, internal um, something that is individual and is not something that is corporate and communal. Um, so over time, um, you know, the evangelistic event comes to shape how we imagine being Christian far more than, uh, you know, gathering in a home to have a meal. So by the time Billy Graham arrives on the scene, uh, all these dynamics are well underway, but he, sort of focalized all of those and furthered them so that, yeah, evangel evangelicalism is shaped by that kind of a, uh, that kind of a dynamic. So people show up on a Sunday with the expectation that they're going to watch a performance. They're going to listen to a speech. They're going to sing music. And when the whole thing is over, they leave. And to be part of it is to sort of have a membership card in it or something like that. And it's, it's hard to know um, how to be connected um, given that kind of a structure. Yeah. So Billy Graham is a big, um, this is hard to say. I mean, well, 
just because there's so much hagiography about Billy Graham. And um, <laughs> from one perspective, his whole thing that he did, I don't want to call it a ministry, was so utterly disconnected from the church or from any church. Um, and it, it, it's had a really bad effect on the American church. That's that I think that's hard for a lot of people to reckon with because his image has been so burnished as this wonderful figure, like America's pastor or whatever. But I mean, when you think in terms of the effect that he's had on churches, it's, it's I think it's been devastating really. And it's made a very individualistic approach to Christianity that, you know, this is about me and this is about my personal relationship. And and yes, you know, we can't judge the authenticity of those conversions and, and, you know, that aside, none of it really pointed people back to connecting to the ministry side, to the loving side of a church. It was about, you know, this is what you do, not this is what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what was wrong uh, in for Billy Graham was that you know people lack meaning, uh, individuals lack meaning, and um, Jesus sort of offers fulfillment and meaning. And once you sort of sign up to that, and, and of course you know you uh, it's sort of fear based. You know you don't want to go to hell, uh, but it's like what exactly are you signing up for? Um, it's hard to, this is, this is the question so many churches and Christian people are asking, like, you know, what do we do? What, what, what's the purpose of this whole thing? Is it just to sort of avoid hell or does, is it, is there a positive vision of what we're even signing up for? Yeah. It's highly individualized. And the whole goal was to get out of a certain state, you know, unsaved headed for hell and get into another state, Christian. I know I have meaning and purpose, um, but it's not a communal and corporate reality that has any kind of compelling vision, which I think opens up um, an, a vision of being Christian because there was a vacuum of any kind of a vision of being Christian that's been filled in by a lot of bad stuff. Like to be Christian is to be a good American. I mean, that was really Billy Graham, uh, you know, to be a loyal American, a good patriot, Um you know, to be a Republican voter, to be a good middle-class citizen, to be a responsible taxpayer and get a job and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, once people uh, pursue that vision of things and find out that it's pretty empty and hollow, it's like, well, what, well, what's next? Like, what, what do I even do? What's this all about? And so we recognize the issue. We recognize that there is a disconnect. How do you forget churches for just a second? How do individuals recognize that there's the the chasm between what the early church thought of as the gathering and what we're currently attending in our in our modern spaces? Like, you know, what what do we do to move one towards the other? Man, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I honestly don't know. That is a real struggle. Uh, it seems to me that uh, one of the things, this is really all I know to do, and that's talk about it. Talk about it as much as possible and discuss. And for me, I'm grateful to be able to do what I do. I mean, my job is to study the New Testament and to see the vision of life 
that is laid out there. Um, and because I've come to see that it's a radically different vision of things than what I was brought up with and that much of my culture conceives of, um, that's led me over the last maybe 20 years or so to dig around in my current culture and American history of the last couple hundred years to find out how did we get here? I mean, what's this all about? What has shaped us to, to sort of fail to see that this is what it's all about? So um, I guess the biggest thing is to, I don't know, read, read the gospels as much as possible and just look at the actual vision of life that Jesus talks about. Um, there's almost, there's almost nothing in what he talks about that anybody can do on their own. It's all a social form of life. It's, um, it's a social vision. Um, it's a political vision, really. It's, it's, it's politics, it's economics. Uh, it's all about living in community and sharing and cultivating the practices of sharing and, um, cultivating the practices of, uh, peacemaking and uh, looking around for how we can embody God's justice in the world. And I, I think it just takes a lot of looking at the scriptures to actually see what is there um, and then look at our modern world and try to determine how we can live this out. Would be great. What would be great is to actually have maybe a small group in a church or have a church go on that um, exploratory journey together and uh, try to gain a vision of that reality on the pages of the New Testament and then talk together about how they can embody it. What does this look like for us and how can we commit to a long-term mode of life that um, looks more and more like the form of life laid out in the New Testament uh, over a period of years? I, I think it takes a lot of talk about it, a lot of discussion and, um, a lot of willingness to admit that we're not doing it right, that uh, we got something wrong here. And that, that doesn't have to be like a self-condemning thing or a, um, a set of practices that are always being critical. It can stem from the hope and promise that there's something better out there for us. Like, what if we explored this and it was way better than we thought it was? So, I mean, that's my posture, I hope not just to sort of lob grenades and be critical, but to sort of from the starting point of confidence in the reality that there's something better out there. That's a different kind of exploratory journey than just like constant criticism. You know, say we're in our church experience, whatever that looks like, whether it's mega church, whether it's super simple, there's, there's always complexity that we as humans just add to our systems, right? Like it has nothing to do with whether or not you're in these these big expressions with all these lights and things, or just a very simple, uh, simple gathering. There, there's always some complexity that we add. What are some ways that we can add simplicity? You know, the simplicity that we see in a meal, in a gathering, just being able to be with each other and demonstrate the love of Jesus. How can we add that layer of simplicity when it is so easy to just complicate things? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things in the New Testament is that, um, and this is very different from our modern world, in, in the modern, in modernism and in liberal democracy, uh, and, well, actually, this is, this is really, really old and really, really human. Uh, we always imagine that the threats to our well-being are out there. 
and uh, it's easy to identify threats and sort of hunker down and, and gather together with people that are like us. But what's interesting about the, the New Testament, and this is very similar to the Old Testament, is the, the threats are all internal and they have, they have everything to do with misdirected desires and, and um, yeah, desires for something more and bigger and better. And, um, you know, individuals desires within community for um, prominence and prestige and supremacy within a community. And I think what a really great question for, for churches to consider is what, what are our desires and how, how do those get in the way of our enjoyment of community life together? Um, you know, what are our internal idolatries um, that drive us to be dissatisfied with a simple expression of, of being church together uh, with the ultimate aim of our, our, our growing and increasing enjoyment of each other over time? What are we looking for? What do we want? And what is generating our desires? I mean, this is really the essence of capitalism is uh, the manipulated uh, generation of desire in people, like desire for things, desire for accumulation, desire for status, desire for prestige and honor, um, cultural prominence, dominance or whatever. And I think that those desires get in the way of a lot. So we want the bigger church building. We want the more spectacular show. And um, those desires kind of hook us up or trap us uh, into a long search for something that we imagine is going to be increasingly satisfying, but as it turns out, is increasingly hollow. So I think that would be one place to start. What is, what is driving us to imagine that if we just got that bigger church building, if we just got that more interesting preacher, if we just got that more... Uh, spectacular, you know, worship experience, that would, that would be it. Then we'd be the church that we want to be. Um, I'd want to know what's generating all those desires, probably some, some slick Christian marketing, you know, of some sort or whatever. Yeah. Those are great thoughts, Tim. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for being a guest on the show. If people wanted to find you online or connect with you, how could they do that? Yeah, my, uh, I have a podcast called Faith Improvised. Um, I've got, um, there's a, I have a blog you can find at timgombas.com. Uh, that's a, mostly a dead blog, but there's a lot of stuff I've written uh, over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, pretty easily findable. I've got a couple of books that have come out recently this year. My book on Paul and Paul's pastoral ministry is called Power in Weakness. And um, I, I have to say, I love how it turned out. It was, it was hard to kind of wrestle to the ground, but um, I sort of searched through Paul's letters and just observed how he pastors churches and what he's all about. And his mode of ministry is just so radically different than um, many modern conceptions of what ministry is all about. So check out Power in Weakness if you're interested in that. And I have a new commentary on Mark's gospel that came out in February or March earlier this year um, and kind of explore a lot of these themes in that commentary as well, because Mark is a really subversive, countercultural gospel. And um, it, it shook me up pretty good, but it was a blast to work through. That's awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, man, thank you so much for giving us your time and being on the show. Cool, Joy. Thanks for having me. 
That wraps up this episode of Dismantle Podcast. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. <laughs>